If you hear this, what's the first thing that comes into your head? I bet it's this. It is a very well-known tune, but what is it? The answer might not be what you expect. I'm David Hill, musical director of the Bach Choir, and in this edition of Change Your Tune, we're talking about this. The setting to music of the poem "Ode to Joy," part of Beethoven's ninth and final symphony. We'll discover where it comes from, what the words are about, and what makes it so extraordinary. Plus, the ninth is a great work in itself, but this part of it has developed a life of its own. The combination of its message of unity and the way the melody soars has seen it used as a rallying cry all over the world. It has united and inspired people to stand up for their beliefs for nearly two centuries. What makes music such a powerful way of getting a message across? The power of music—it goes past even the power of politicians or politics. So all those years ago, Beethoven writing this as the hope then is still the hope that we can have now. Whatever I'm doing, it starts from the music. Performer, writer, producer, and passionate activist, and founding a member of Clean Bandit, Love Saga. Later on, he'll tell us why he believes music is such an important tool for change, and how he's using it to make a difference. One, two, three, four. So let's go back a bit. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony premiered in Vienna in 1824 with Beethoven himself conducting. By this stage, he was completely deaf. That's quite something, isn't it? Creating music capable of inspiring people for nearly 200 years. But not being able to hear it yourself, the story goes that at the premiere, the musicians had to tell Beethoven how much the audience were applauding. Only when they turned him round could he see how wild the audience were going. So where does this famous section fit in? The first three movements of the symphony are completely orchestral, as symphonies all were up until this point. The fourth and final movement starts quite calmly, and this very, very recognisable melody is passed around the orchestra. Then the music builds up into a kind of turmoil, and at its height, a baritone solo breaks in. A baritone voice is slightly higher in pitch than a bass, but lower than a tenor. The soloist stops the chaos, singing words written by Beethoven himself: "O Freunde, nicht diese Töne! O friends, not these sounds!" Let us instead strike up a more pleasing and joyful one. This is the cue for the choir to come in for the first time with that famous theme, and the words they're singing are from the German writer Friedrich Schiller's poem "Ode to Joy," which we'll hear more about later. At our last rehearsal, I got the choir, with the help of our fingers, Phil, our pianist, to demonstrate what happens. Although we didn't have a soloist, which meant I was up for it. Freude, Freude, Freude. It starts with just the lower voices singing in German to Joy, Freude, beautiful spark, the gods, daughter of Elysium. We enter drunk with fire. Heavenly One, Thy holiness, Thy magic binds again what custom strictly divided all humans, 
become brothers where thy gentle wing abides. And then the upper voices join. You can hear why this piece has become a rallying cry, the stirring music and talk of all humanity coming together in joy and happiness. It's been used all over the world by people wanting to make their voices heard in protest or defiance. Here to tell us a bit more about that is J.B. Astom, who sings tenor with the Bach Choir. Hello, J.B. Hi, David. So, when and where have people used Ode to Joy? Well, this part of Beethoven's Ninth has been adopted as an anthem of protest and resistance in all kinds of situations. For instance, when the repressive Chinese regime tried to quash the pro-democracy student protesters in Tiananmen Square in 1989, they managed to hack into the PA system and played Ode to Joy at full volume to drown out the government propaganda. As another example, when General Pinochet was locking up men without trial in his reign of terror in Chile, women would gather outside the prisons and sing it at the tops of their voices to keep their spirits up and let them know they hadn't been forgotten. In the 50s and 60s, East and West German athletes competed together at the Olympics and used Ode to Joy as their joint anthem. And just after the Berlin Wall fell, West Side star composer Leonard Bernstein conducted a special concert of the 9th in East Berlin and the melodies used for the European anthem. After the Brexit vote, musicians got together in flash mobs across the UK and played it to protest the decision. The piece really has been the soundtrack to so many moments of protest and defiance and movements for unity. If you're interested in finding out more, and there's more to tell, including the darker side and the fact that it was a favourite of Hitler's, there's a great documentary called Following the Ninth, and I'll put information about that in the show notes. So if we could go from bottom of 49... Let's continue our musical journey. After the choir sings this famous melody, the soloists come in and Beethoven combines different solo, vocal and orchestral textures in variations on that theme. He writes some very complex music that's difficult technically for both the orchestra and singers with some very high soprano notes. It ends with this final dramatic appearance of a chord which is startling as it hasn't been heard to this point and as we face the awesome moment of standing before God. Steht vor Gott. The idea of using the voice in music to unite people behind a cause or as a form of protest is still as relevant as ever. Welcome to our world, this is the place the South London voiceless speak. Because I can't see them past these non-existent headlines. Love Sega was a founding member of the chart-topping, Grammy-winning group Clean Bandit and is now a successful solo artist. He was a 2022 Arts Foundation Fellow for Music for Change and he's just finished a year as the Royal Festival Hall's Philharmonia Orchestra's Artist in Residence, creating work that explores themes linking climate change and social justice. Do we really care? Yeah! Do we really care? Yeah! 
You probably couldn't be asking anyone more qualified about using music to get a message across. Whatever I'm doing, it starts from the music. Music is something that we all have in common. We can all share it across the globe. It's a common language. And it's the joy, it's the passion from performing. So having the privilege of having a platform, then it's thinking, what are you talking about? Then now with streaming, you can access music from any era, any time, any place. Therefore, as a musician or a creative person, you've got to be saying something new. For us now, it's the climate crisis, which is the biggest thing which is affecting people my generation and younger. However, to use the hope and enjoyment from music to try and bring some positivity to the message there. And that's the challenge. If you never learn, there can be a lesson. If we never earn, that is the oppression. With the wrong or right, there can be a limit. Everybody knows the power of music. We had the King's coronation and obviously the Queen's funeral and music was front and centre in the Abbey. Even when you have authoritarian regimes they get the uniforms they get the fashion the tailoring right and then they also have the the bands and they have the big old parades there's nothing more exciting than the communal power of the collective voice and that's why of course you see in churches in religions you've got that it's something that people can relate to because everybody has a voice and then the choir the collectiveness in well pop music where I started it's all about that solo that individual that's the genius and even when you speak to Beethoven, you might say, oh, this composer is, this is the genius. However, it's pushing the collective spirit where the choir wouldn't exist or the orchestra wouldn't exist without all these players playing their own part in it. And I think that's what we need. We're obviously talking today about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and the Ode to Joy and that kind of political message that was right in this piece from the day one. And what does this piece mean to you in terms of its importance? It's fascinating to see, especially um, with Ode to Joy, you see how important it is, not just in one country and across Europe. Europe almost has it as a de facto anthem, really. The power of music, it goes past even the power of politicians or politics. So it's the power how music has outlasted and can outlast as we can see with Ode to Joy, all those years ago, Beethoven writing this as the hope then is still the hope that we can have now and binding us right now when we have different challenges. Shall we pick it up? Page 54. We left the choir and Beethoven standing before God. And this fourth movement continues with different versions of that main tune, a kind of theme and variations. At this point in the poem, Schiller is talking about brotherhood. Go on your way, brothers, joyful like a hero to victory. Again, Beethoven uses the lower voices, perhaps representing the brothers. And again, another bit of solo singing is needed. Oh my God, I'm going to have to sing it. Okay. Laufet, Brüder, The meaning of what the choir is singing is such an important part of this work. And the words have their own story. JB, where did they come from and why did Beethoven choose them? 
The words are adapted from Ode to Joy by the German poet Friedrich Schiller. He wrote it in 1785, over 40 years before Beethoven even started writing the symphony. Schiller was a philosopher and physician who was at the center of what's called the Age of Enlightenment, a time in Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries that saw big changes in philosophy, culture and society. Schiller wrote the poem to celebrate freedom and justice and the idea of happiness for every citizen. But a lot of the ideals of the Enlightenment never happened. The time that followed was full of wars, corruption, poverty and slavery. So, you know, Schiller died feeling ashamed of his vision, thinking he'd be naive ever having it in the first place. So Beethoven then discovered the poem for himself when he was 15 and loved it. Much later in his life, he went through a period of deep depression. He'd lost his hearing, he'd overcome illness, had his heart broken, he'd even contemplated suicide at that point. He was pessimistic about the state of the world. But even so, he wanted to say something positive and inspiring, even revolutionary. He remembered Schiller's poem and decided to use it. The Ninth was his last symphony, and he put everything into it after not sleeping and wandering the streets at night. And in fact, he was sometimes apprehended by the police as he was mistaken for as a vagrant. Many people see the Ninth as his masterpiece, and it changed the whole world of music because it's the very first time that voices were used in this kind of work. So why do you think it was so important to Beethoven to be using voices in this way? When Beethoven wrote this symphony, he was already in his 50s, so technically a composer past his prime. And Vienna at the time was very fascinated with Rossini. And I felt like probably Beethoven was kind of jealous with, with Rossini. And probably it was his way of getting the attention back to him by using voices, especially in Vienna, which was considered to be the center of culture and music at the time. Of course, this fourth movement is not all loud and uplifting. There are parts that are much more mysterious and thoughtful. The final section of Schiller's poem wonders about whether there is really a creator above the starry canopy. Beethoven uses the voices to portray humanity's wonder at the vastness of the cosmos. He puts us in touch with our own mortality. Here the words mean, do you sense the creator world? Above stars must this creator dwell. And listen to the mystery here. Is there anyone that really exists? Two, three, one. Beethoven's using the music and Schiller's words to say important things that were extremely relevant to his turbulent times and to highlight the questions on the minds of many people. Artists are vital in any age because of their ability to raise issues and get people to see them differently. Why this wealth you always name is never common. 
Artists like Love Sega choose to do that through the work they produce. What is he trying to get people to think about or do through the material he creates? Performing is a statement. So you could say it's protest, but it's a statement. It's a statement where I'm gathering X number of people to come and sing together. We're going to choose this particular venue and then we're going to perform to this audience. It's a statement to say, look, we want to come and bring this to you. And it can just be entertainment. You know, it doesn't all have to be heavy, but that's a statement in of itself. So, Sega, when you're in this creative process, how do you balance what it is you want to get over as a message and your musical message and, and, and other things that you feel? Um, what kind of balance do you have to go for here? So I think here it's to think about what tools you have when you've got a piece of music. You've got the voice and you've got the words and then you've got the melody. Mm-hmm. It's the sugar in the medicine. So you can make the melody and the music really sweet and then you can make the lyrics quite mm-hmm. hard hitting and quite direct. You've got these two different things. So you can either hide the message or the call to action in the lyrics or you can have it in the music that's the balance and then you can play with that well you know what i think a lot of what you just said actually is in the beethoven because he gives us a rather sort of innocuous very serene melody but behind all of this is a real turmoil yeah um, and a message exactly yeah you can make them feel unsettled and unnerved by it's thelonious uh, monk the famous jazz musician says there's no such thing as a wrong note it's how you resolve it so with the music you can have it really discordant but then it's whether you then resolve it and then within the resolution is that where people find the hope it it, it is really doing it in a way that gets under the under the skin of people in an in a proper way isn't it that music can do that yeah and i think that's what we need to do to think in a clever way and that's the challenge for whether it's orchestras whether it's choirs composers whether it's songwriters now to say how can we touch that nerve in a way where we can ruffle some feathers, but then also intrigue people to bring them with them in a creative way if we can then bring some positivity and collective action in caring for the environment then that's how we interpret it. But it has to start from music. So this is the last time we hear from the choir. The music is also inspired by the main theme. Here, though, it's treated in a particular way. This is called a fugue with the voice part singing the same melody at different times. Then the orchestra takes over and the whole piece ends in an instrumental frenzy. The voices don't come back but it is definitely the choral parts that people remember. Okay, so JB, you've sung this before. What's the experience like in the middle of that sound? What I can tell you about that from a singer's perspective is that you feel hugged almost by this huge wall of sound. You know for yourself that you're singing your part, but all you can hear is the unified whole. I'm a part of something larger. 
maybe that's why it's so effective as an anthem in so many of these movements and causes because it just has that property that just rouses that feeling of community and brotherhood and belongingness. <laughs> That's it for this edition of Change Your Tune from the Bach Choir. To discover the stories behind more of the world's most famous choral pieces and to hear the full interviews with some of our stellar guests, search for Change Your Tune wherever you get your podcast. And if you liked it, please give us a rating and a review. It really does help people find us and pass on the link to everyone you know. Also, if you've enjoyed getting to know this part of Beethoven's Ninth, I've put together a playlist of other famous choral movements for you to try out. You can find it at bachchoir.org.uk, where you can also sign up to our newsletter. Along with the playlist, we'll send you all the latest news on this podcast, on upcoming performances, as well as giving you even more insight into everything that happens behind the scenes at the Bach Choir. I'll put that link in the show notes. Thank you, JB. I would also like to say thank you to Love Sego. You'll find links to his work on our website as well. As you said, it's actually the orchestra that finishes the work. We didn't have an orchestra, just fingers fill. But even he didn't have quite enough fingers to replicate everything that's happening at the huge ending. So he and I had a go as a duet on the piano. If you go to our YouTube channel, you can see this happen. We're going for the big finish. Until the next time, goodbye.